Three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is T. Krulos, T-E-A. Last name is spelled K-R-U-L-O-S. He's just published a book, August 25th, 2020. The title of the book is American Madness, the story of the phantom patriot and how conspiracy theorists hijacked an American consciousness. And, and uh, I just finished the book today. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. It had a lot of very important themes in it. Uh, but Mr. Krulos, this is not his first book. He's also published other books, actually, which tie into this book. The first book he published uh, that I have information on is Heroes in the Night, Inside the Real-Life Superhero Movement, which ties into this book. Also, Monster Hunters on the Trail with Ghost Hunters, Bigfooters, UFOlogists, and other paranormal investigators. That was 2015. And then last year, Apocalypse, Any Day Now, Deep Underground with America's Doomsday Preppers. But uh, again, we're going to talk about this book, American Madness. Mr. Krulis, are you there? Yes, thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. Really a terrific book. There was uh, really interesting, disturbing, a lot of great information. For people who don't know your name, can you talk about your background, how you became interested in writing, and what led you to uh, write this book, American Madness? Sure. Uh, I've always enjoyed writing, and in particular, I've always liked sort of um, people who are a little bit outside the norm, um, unusual subcultures, groups of people, social movements, um, stuff like that. So uh, I worked on my first book, Heroes in the Night, from about 2010 until it was published in uh, 2013. And while I was working on this book, I was uh, doing a blog that tied into it. And one day I got an email from someone, and he said that his name was Richard McCaslin, and that he had a superhero persona called the Phantom Patriot. So real-life superheroes, as they're called, are people that adopt their own superhero personas, and some of them like do humanitarian work, and others uh, you know, actually try to fight crime. So he told me he had adopted this persona, and that he had raided a place called the Bohemian Grove back in 2002. And I was like... I don't know what this guy is talking about. I'd never heard of the Bohemian Grove. So I started looking into that. And it just developed into the story that um, was something I slowly worked on over the next eight years. Uh, and I found out all about Richard's life. And he told me a lot about different theories that he believed in. Um, and so, you know, every time he would tell me about one of these theories, I would sort of research it and see what I could find. And I talked to a lot of people who intersected with his life, and it just took a lot of strange twists and turns. And then it sort of uh, another layer to the story was added when we started getting into this culture that we find ourselves in right now. Uh, and I think it all came together into a pretty interesting book. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And it really started, so he reached out to you initially, correct? Yes. And that was in what roughly what year? Uh, 2010. 2010. I got a message from him. So you guys uh, were in communication, or you knew each other for quite some time. And he, he, this whole Bohemian Grove. Like I remember hearing the story about this person, but he kind of dropped off my radar. Can you talk about what the Bohemian Grove is and what, what Richard McCaslin, how his tie to the Bohemian Grove is? Yes. So, um, you know, the first day Richard contacted me, I went to Wikipedia, and then 
I just fell down a rabbit hole. I was reading a lot about the Bohemian Grove and watching videos and stuff like that. It's this um, very large private encampment in Northern California. It's owned by a club called the Bohemian Club. And this club uh, has membership that includes uh, many of the world's most powerful men. Um, there's been several uh, U.S. presidents that have been members over the years, including Nixon, Reagan, the Bush family, um, as well as, you know, top-level military and CEOs and sports team owners and famous entertainers. And they have this retreat that they, they can use year-round, but the big event is in July. Um, every July, they have this uh, two-week period where a lot of the members go there and um, uh, they have speeches and they have entertainment and, and they, you know, they get drunk and they kind of network with each other. Um, but conspiracists have always been drawn to the story, not only because there's this meeting of, of men in this secret location in the woods, you know, the media isn't allowed in there and anyone who isn't a member isn't allowed in. But they do this uh, sort of bizarre ritual to kick this summer encampment off um, where they actually burn an effigy at the foot of a 40-foot statue of an owl in this kind of bizarre occult-themed ceremony. Right, the cre cremation of care ceremony. Yes, right, exactly. Um, so this is... Uh, by the way, they've been doing this cremation of care out there since 1872. So it's a long-running tradition from this old club. Um, in, in the year 2000, uh, Alex Jones, who I'm sure most people are familiar with now, um, this was before he sort of became very well-known, but he snuck in there with an accomplice, and they had a camera hidden in a duffel bag. And they secretly recorded this cremation of care ceremony. And then he cut together a documentary called Dark Secrets uh, Inside Bohemian Grove. Um, and his interpretation was very much spun with a conspiracy angle. He doesn't outright say it, but he does a lot of speculating in this documentary where he says, who knows, they might be sacrificing live people in there. So, uh, to tie the story back to Richard McCaslin, when this documentary comes out, Richard is kind of down and out in Austin, Texas. He's originally from Ohio, but he had moved down to Texas, and he went through a really rough patch in his life. Um, so, I think that he was really sort of looking for something, and uh, he ends up tuning into Austin Cable Access, which I guess if you're if you're a little bit younger and listening to this, cable access was a little bit like the internet before the internet. It was where you know these very sort of unscripted shows uh, could exist. So he sees this documentary about the Bohemian Grove on Austin cable access, and he gets very upset about it. He thinks that uh, you know the New World Order is sacrificing live people up there in the California Redwoods. Um, so he adopts this phantom patriot persona, and he loads up with a bunch of weapons, and he drives to the Bohemian Grove. 
he raids the place, and then he has a pretty tense armed standoff um, with the police, and they arrest him. And that was what January two thousand two. Is that right? Yes. That's so yeah. it's, it's right after nine eleven, and he, uh, Mr. McCaslin, also was he. He was dressed up as kind of this phantom patriot, right? He put on yeah. this real life superhero outfit. Yes, and his costume was he had a, a skull mask, the sort of grinning skull mask uh, with an American flag bandana around his head, and then he had a, a jumpsuit with his. Um, logo on it which is a, a double set of peas um you know and his combat boots and his his weapons which he had a long gun and a pistol and a ninja sword and a smoke bomb launcher so you know he was prepared for action yeah and he like lit something on fire i think one of his charges charges was arson so yeah. he was kind of in there causing uh you know mischief yes he was one of his goals was he wanted to destroy uh, this owl statue. The Great Owl of Bohemia is the name of the statue. And he thought that it might have been made out of uh, a carved redwood. So he was hoping to start that on fire. Uh, but it's actually it's made out of concrete. So um, he decided he'd go to near that statue. There is a like an out sort of restaurant mess hall type of thing. Uh, and he went into the kitchen there and, and lit that building on fire, which uh, the sprinkler system put it out pretty quickly. But uh, that did result in him being charged with arson. And so he um, he was really kind of like he had kind of a comic book persona. So he was invading. Wasn't he inside the Bohemian Grove for like 45 minutes or something? Oh, he actually he was in there overnight. Um, oh, okay. He went in there at night uh, because he thought that this was probably his best chance of catching them doing a satanic ritual of some sort, is what he thought was going on. So he snuck in there, but then the batteries in his flashlight died. And, you know, the, the, the redwoods are so huge that they block out the moon. And so it was completely dark. He actually broke into a cabin uh, that he found nearby. And he stayed in there all night. Uh, you know, he was awake, but he couldn't see anything. So he stayed in this cabin until sunrise. Uh, and then he made his way around the grove because he could see. So he had this uh, arm standoff very early in the morning, actually. Uh, right. So he had, and there was, I forgot, like there was a bunch of people there. But he, I mean, he was, I think he wrote in the book, like he almost open fire like he was considering doing something really aggressive yeah but that didn't work out that way so he so they arrest this guy in a costume real life superhero outfit and took him to jail and then he what 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 happened once he went to jail um so he was arrested and charged with five felonies uh you know and some enhancements for his standoff with the police um, they brought him to jail and, you know, the a jury convicted him on the charges and he spent, uh, I think it was six and a half years in jail. And then he spent a couple of years on parole after that in Redwood city. Um, as soon as he was done with parole, he went on this peaceful 
48 state tour where he made a, a stop in each of the lower 48 states and he did a peaceful protest outside of well-known monuments, you know, like maybe the Golden Gate Bridge uh, or sometimes a conspiracy-related site like, um, you know, Ground Zero for 9-11 or outside of a Mason Temple. Um, he did this tour and then... He lived in Las Vegas for a little while, and then he moved to kind of a weird little desert community called Pahrump in Nevada, which is very close to the Nevada-California border. Right. Um, and that's uh, he bought a house there, and that's where he spent his his last years. His last year. So he had gone on this thing, but he kind of was looking for some kind of attention or notoriety when he was doing this. 48 state tour with a bus he had inherited money from his parents i think yeah and it just did he didn't seem to get or any traction for that would you agree with that yes uh and that's actually the the reoccurring story so when he uh raided the bohemian grove he thought that one of the reasons that this would be worth uh sacrificing his freedom because he knew he was going to get arrested uh, he thought that there would be this press interest that would blow the lid off of the Bohemian Grove and that people would find out about his arrest in uh, USA Today and CNN and, and everyone. Everyone would be talking about this story and the Bohemian Grove would have to admit that they were sacrificing people there. But the reality was that there was actually very little media interest at the time. Um, some of the Northern California newspapers wrote a few short articles about him, but there was nothing major. And I think that one of the reasons why is 2002, it's, things didn't quite go viral as, as well as they do now. You know, social media wasn't as strong of a viral force. So he just didn't really have any interest in that. Um, then he did this protest tour and kind of the same thing. He was hoping that people would see him protesting and he would get on the news and, you know, people would write about him. Uh, but he got, he only got one media piece that entire tour, which was um, a newspaper in Iowa ran a picture of him uh, when he was protesting an appearance by Obama. So, and even later in his life, he made these uh these self-made sort of action videos, and he was hoping that these would get very strong interest, possibly even be picked up by a cable network or something. Um, but he just didn't uh, didn't get any attention for those either. Yeah, so it was kind of a frustrating thing that happened over and over again with him. And he he pretty much went through the main figures and characters of American conspiracy paranoia, Alex Jones. And then I think he like went through David Icke as well. So he, he had all those books. And when you were relating with him, he would reference those, right? These kind of ideas. Yes. And I, I, in fact, I had sort of an informal rule, which was if he told me that I should read a book, then I would, you know, I would pick up that book and read it. So, um, I read, uh, at least a few of the books that, that he had read. All right. So it was, I think you, you mentioned Transformation of America. That yep. was one of he wrote. And uh, Alex Jones's documentaries, David Icke's yep. kind of yep. lizard theory. So he kind of like was uh, definitely 
an omnivore, a quarter, you know that. But he also kind of believed all that stuff. Didn't he change his ideas? Go from Christian to seven? Oh, what was it? Uh, Jehovah's Witness, and then to something else. He kind of bounced around in his worldview. Would you agree with that? Yes. Um, yeah, that was one of the a very interesting thing I thought about him. He started out uh, very heavily influenced by Christianity. You know, he um, thought that that was definitely a motivation for him rating the, the Bohemian Grove. Right, so and, he had all kinds of biblical quotes as well kind yeah. of in, in his cartoon, sorry. Yeah, in his cartoon, and when he uh, he realized um, that he couldn't burn the great owl of Bohemia, he left a note that had a Bible verse on it, and it's the Bible verse that talks about not worshiping a false idol. Gotcha. Um, so he was very influenced by that, um, but then... Uh, he was in prison, and he converted to be a Je Jehovah's Witness. Um, but then when he was out on parole, uh, he started getting very much into the, the teachings of David Icke. Um, and he was so strongly influenced by him that he completely abandoned religion and described himself as agnostic. Um, at the end of his life, it looks like um, he was very much into like Gnostic teachings though, because he made some references to those. Yeah. So and his, yeah, his outfits had the no R or whatever cross out R. So he didn't believe in religion per se. Right. Right. Yeah. Really fascinating. So, so he gets out of, and your relationship with him started in 2010. So he had been out of jail. He got out for six years. I think he was overcharged or there was a charging problem by the judge. I gave him 12 years, so he ended up in six, writing comic books in jail the whole time. And uh, he really, he still had that real desire to maintain his, he never kind of got over his addiction to conspira, conspiracy material, did he? No. Um, and those, in fact, those were the two major things in his life uh, uh, that you mentioned. He was very much into superhero comic books his entire life. That had always been his escapism since he was a kid. Um, and after seeing that Alex Jones documentary, like he took that step over the conspiracy theory line that you don't really come back from. So, Yeah, and you talk about, I mean, you had an excellent chapter kind of talking about the psychological profile of people who, who you know, there's, there's the self-identification. I mean, he his excuse for not getting attention, for example... From the media was it was a conspiracy to suppress the information so yeah. he kind of had this self can you talk a little bit about his cycle what you think like his psychological outlook was like yeah um and something that i found very interesting about him was that he saw a very deep symbolism in a lot of things you'd see secret messages or you know symbols so he always just had this like sort of paranoid Part of his brain that was turned on um, everything that he saw or places that he went so and I think it's something that had to do with um, the trauma that he experienced in the late 90s and, and early 2000s you know he had lost his parents and he was just having trouble coping so I think like this part of his brain turned on that kind of was trying to explain the world to him mm -hmm. And just interpreting all these conspiracies that he saw everywhere. And he kind of had a kind of very frustrated 
relationship with women, and he had this real kind of a obsession with a country singer. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, so this was a really weird part of the story that didn't come out until I'd been talking to him for a couple of years. And then uh, he'd asked me if I'd heard of this country singer, um, Shelley Wright, and I'd never heard of her. And then he started telling me this story, and um, it was it was disturbing. So what he was laying out was that he had obviously uh, formed this unhealthy infatuation with this country singer, and he'd gone to a charity event, and he had gotten a pretty big inheritance from his parents after they died. Um, that's one of the reasons he was able to live like he did. He got a pretty large sum of money, but he really didn't have anything to spend it on, and he was very lonely. So he went to this charity event, and he threw down a pretty significant amount of money to win a dinner date with this country music singer. Um, and they went out on a date, and he just uh, had this idea that they were going to have this romantic relationship. Um, and he started writing to her after that, and her, her fan club asked him to stop, and, and he was upset about it. I don't think that he would have done anything dangerous or that she was in danger, but his behavior was, you know, pretty creepy, I would say. And I think it's just because he sort of had this failure to launch where he had never um, had a discussion with his parents about what uh, romance was and stuff like that. So Yeah, but, I mean, it seems like he had that longing, but he just couldn't, he just wasn't successful. He had trouble online dating, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Didn't have yeah, a woman in his life, though. Right, he just, there were certain things that he, like, didn't know how to do, I guess is the way I would describe it. Yeah, and I mean, the wrinkle was is that the object of his obsession was was secretly in the closet, right? Yes, that was, I thought that was a, you know, just made a strange story even stranger. Yeah. Uh, it turned out Shelley Wright had been in the closet for a number of years. Um, she came out, which was very brave because she's in the country music scene, which, you know, is not, especially at that time, not necessarily friendly to LGBT uh, people. Right. So, but there again, he, instead of being like, oh, okay, I'm just going to live with that fact, he, um, he started to spin a conspiracy around that too, you know? Right. And then you just see that kind of mania or paranoia kind of in all of these relationships with these things with, with McCaslin. He's, and he's kind of like a hapless character, always moving around. But he really liked, I mean, you you talked about his stint as, what was he, Six Flags in Austin as Batman for two years. So he really had that obsession with this. And that's kind of why he reached out to you, right? Is that you wrote about the real-life superhero movement? Yeah. Um, one of the things I had done, which was really a good idea, I think, was I'd started blogging uh, about my progress working on this book and people I had met. And I did uh, these short profiles on different real-life superheroes in different cities. So he had found that blog because it started to get some some good traffic from people in the community and media pieces would link to it sometimes. Um, but the yeah, the Six Flags thing, you know, this is where I think his story is really tragic. Like he seems like he was almost always like one step away from having something fulfilling in his life. 
So he went to stuntman school. Um, after high school, he went. He joined the Marines, uh, and he went to stuntman school. And he viewed both of those as sort of superhero training. So he got a job at Six Flags portraying Batman, which is a you know really cool gig. You got to fly over the audience on a on a zip line. Um, but then it started to fall apart because uh, his his parents were very ill, so he took some time off work to visit them, and then he lost his job. So there's this, uh, you'll find throughout the book, there's a few chapters where I end on a note that I'm, like, cautiously hopeful that he's finding something in life, uh, but he never does. He just kind of moves around. He's kind of a little bit hapless, but it's very, there's a kind of a very Americana... Uh, aspect to his his longings and things like that like I got that feel through through the book and so after your communication with him that's when you guys kind of became acquainted acquaintances right after, after this exchange of emails yeah we started um, kind of corresponding back and forth because I told him uh, that I was interested in his life uh, which I think he was really happy about because like I said earlier, a lot of media had no interest in him. But I was like, yeah, I want to know your story. I want to know how you got to that point where you went into the Bohemian Grove. So uh, we started corresponding, and then I ended up meeting him uh, about three times. Um, he came to Milwaukee, which is where I live, during his uh, tour, where he did the 48-state tour. Mm -hmm. So I met him here in Milwaukee. Um, and then in 2012, as sort of the 10-year anniversary of his Bohemian Grove raid, he dressed up as the Phantom Patriot and peacefully protested in front of the Bohemian Club headquarters, which are in San Francisco. Okay. So I met him out there, and then the last time I met him was at his home in Pahrump, Nevada. Right, and he was still kind of uh, all the way up until, you know, 2019, he was still doing the kind of uh, real-life superhero stuff, right? Yes, yeah. Um, he did insofar as he would do protests. Um, sometimes he would go to Las Vegas protests. And also there was a period of time where he had made some friends in that real-life superhero community. He sort of at, at first had trouble making any connections because they were like, whoa, what is this guy talking about? Um, but he did make some connections, and he went out to um, the Bay Area, uh, and also he went to a meetup in San Diego where he joined other real-life superheroes that were handing out supplies to homeless people. Uh, and in one case, they made like an appearance at a comic book store, which was very exciting to him because he loved comic books, of course. Um, so he did make some connections into that community towards the end. And he kind of, uh, I mean, that community has only grown over time due to social media and things like that. Would you agree with that? It, um, it's kind of fluxed. It had a very big interest in following between about 2009 and maybe around 2013 or 15. And then um, it sort of boiled down to a lot of the people who are really into it. So I would say it's probably a little bit smaller now, but the people that are in it are the ones who are very dedicated to that idea. And they do add new people all the time, you know, because people find out about it. 
So it kind of fluxes a little bit up and down, but does does do you think that the real life superhero is that a subset of cosplay? Um, I mean, it's a little bit different because the real life superheroes, for the most part, adopt their own superhero persona. Like Richard created the Phantom Patriot, and a lot of people come up with these original uh, hero personas, and then they try to do something super heroic. Some of them actually try to fight crime, too. So it's a little bit different in cosplay, and that cosplay is usually imitating uh, a known character, and they usually just go to, like, comic book conventions and stuff like that. Right, and he also, Richard, also did thought crime. He invented another persona, not the Phantom Patriot, but, you know, somebody based on George Orwell. And yeah. he, he would, his, I'm sure you can find them in the book, for sure, but his costumes had little, you know, symbols or meanings or slogans and things like that on there. And, uh, I mean, but he, I mean, he was within, and I think you show in your book that there's uh, maybe people who don't dress up in outfits, but people engaging in the same thing that McCaslin was, where they, like the Radon uh, Comet Pizza, for example, or some of these other, you talk about those in your book. So he was, he's not unique in that regard. Would you agree with that? Yes, um, that when that raid on Comet Ping Pong happened, uh, which was in 2016, it's a man named Edgar uh, Welch, and it just it was incredible to me how similar um, that story was to Richard. They had a lot of the same motivations, you know. In that case, um, Edgar Welch had heard this PizzaGate theory. Um, and he believed that this pizzeria had a secret room where they had child victims that they were sex trafficking. So very much like Richard, he was like, you know, I've got to do something. And uh, he brought a weapon and raided the place, not because he wanted to do a mass shooting or anything like that, but because he thought that he uh, was going to find these children and he was going to help them. Right. So, and there's other stories that I talk about in the book over the years where um, kind of similar, similar things where someone sees something online and uh, they believe it and they start planning this, this plot to uh, fight back. Right. The, the, the gears start moving in their minds. It's really incredible how many, when you list those in your book, there's so many stories of people taking action or uh you know becoming these kind of uh these act activists like they really want this kind of based upon sketchy information sketchy yeah. information yeah so um but like i did he just never kind of was able to get out of that would you agree with that with this kind of conspiracy conspiracy paranoia yes and i mean that's uh where he differs from uh you know edgar welch uh the the guy who raided the pizzeria, he, um, afterwards, he kind of admitted that, okay, you know, I thought that this was a thing, and, and I guess I was wrong, because I went in there and I didn't find uh, what, what I was looking for. Uh, Richard never had that reversal. He always believed that he had done the right thing, and the, the Bohemian Grove was what he thought it was. He just happened to be there, not at the right time. Um, so like I said, he didn't really 
you kind of cross the line that you, you don't come back from. Right. And, uh, I mean, it just, it's kind of a sad end, but, uh, what, uh, what, you know, we're at about 40 minutes. Do you have anything that I missed or ever anything that you'd like to add about the discussion or any question I didn't ask? Um, no, I, I think we covered a lot of the book. Um, I'll say that the book takes a lot of strange twists and turns that we didn't talk about. Uh, some of them are, are big, but and some of them are small. Um, but there's a, it's a very complicated story, as it turns out. Yeah, it really is. It's very interesting. Getting to the end, it really made me reconsider so much of the stuff I've read as somebody who definitely has read that material and kind of reevaluated re in light of the way you wrote your book. So I commend you for writing. It's an excellent book. Where can people reach you on social media? Or do you have your website? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I've got a website, tkrulos.com, T-E-A-K-R-U-L-O-S.com. And on my website, you can find information on all of my books, including where you can order them. I also write uh, a weekly column on my website called T's Weird Week. Um, and I just kind of write about whatever topical thing I want to. Gotcha. Cool. And do you have like uh, Twitter or Facebook or anything like that? I know you yeah, have a Facebook uh, page. Yeah. Yes. Um, probably the best way, if you go to my website uh, at the, the top of my column every week, I have links to my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, my Goodreads page. Awesome. Cool. Well, great. Again, the author's name is T. Krulos, and the book's title is American Madness, the story of the Phantom Patriot and how conspiracy theorists hijack the American consciousness. Highly recommend this book. It's an excellent read. So congratulations on uh, its publication. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for agreeing to the interview, and uh, good luck in your future endeavors, man. This was a great book. Thank you. All right, take care. Have a good day. You too.